Just a warning that this episode does contain graphic details of domestic violence. If you ever need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. My youngest daughter, who was only about um, three or four, um, was asking me why Daddy had that big knife in his in his hand. Um, and in the intensity and the speed of it, I didn't even notice. I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. A podcast about death and dying, love, grief and hope. On our show, we talk to all kinds of people who through various trajectories have found themselves trying to explain the unexplainable. Trying to accept the unacceptable. Trying to make sense of chaos. Anita, thank you so much for coming on today. I guess we'll start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became a psychotherapist. Sure. Thanks, Maddie. So I became a psychotherapist after I went through my own therapy process because I escaped domestic violence and I wanted to make sure that that never happened again because when I was inside it, I didn't realise this was abuse. I knew it wasn't good, but I didn't realise it was abuse. And so I went into therapy and that was such a valuable experience for me. And so after I went through a couple of years of individual and group therapy, I decided I wanted to change careers and I changed from working in accounts to becoming a psychotherapist. been in practice 20 years now. And so I started running a women's group specifically for women starting again. And I started doing talks and running workshops and running online courses and doing all that sort of thing because I'm getting older and I want to be able to reach more women and reach the women that um, haven't got faith in the system because of what they've experienced and the women that either because of their circumstances or finances, um, you know, for a range of things, they're falling through the cracks or they can't get the help. They're just busy just trying to get through each day and I wanted to reach those women who were who were struggling so we're very fortunate to be be able to be working with a whole group of amazing women now. Sounds like incredible work that you do Anita. Um, I want to get into your experience um, of, of domestic violence. How old were you when that happened? So I was at I'd recently broken up from a relationship. I was about 22, I think it was, because I'd left home 16. I'd been with that first relationship about six years. So I was in my early 20s. And it's hard to believe now when I think about it. But I remember just breaking down inside. But, of course, I was really good at not showing anything and breaking down feeling so helpless and so overwhelmed and so much emotional pain and thinking it must be that I'm meant to love this person because we're meant to love everybody and that must be what I'm meant to be doing. And so I just gave up because I didn't feel I had the anything that could get me 
get me out of it. And so I ended up in a relationship with him and we had a child together and, and I was with him for close to six years. And then he went into hospital and it was when he was in hospital that we'll always remember this time I was taking dinner to my two daughters at the dining table and the light coming in the window and it just feeling so bright and peaceful and happy and secure. And, and it was like this light bulb of clarity oh my god this is what life's meant to be like and I just wanted I didn't want this to end and so I was kind of watching him in hospital and then when he's coming out of hospital I let him know that I want to take my life back. Was it from a place of emotional abuse where it started? Absolutely emotional abuse first he used to um, like on one of our first dates he got upset at me because I was dancing in the at the party there was another guy dancing but you know we weren't you know just dancing on the dance floor together just being friendly smiling talking and everything and he you know did that interrogation and that anger you know and punishing in that kind of way so that was like the first incident of being that jealousy and that control Mm. and then it was just he would give me these ridiculous um, ultimatums like if he had a child from a previous marriage as as I did mm. and he said if both our children were in a boat and it was tipped over who would you save first and oh. like, <laughs> so mm. there was just this constant putting me um, in a difficult position and I wasn't comfortable to say well of course I'm going to save my daughter she's my flesh and blood but I'm actually, I'm not even going to answer that question because it's crazy. What's the purpose of it? But I didn't have that strength. I was so disconnected. Mm, I was mm. so much fear in me. It was, I was just always in, what do I say? What, what, what do I do? Um, Trying um, to say the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Did it progress from that emotional abuse? Yeah, it, you know, it progressed to, he changed my name. He changed my hair. He'd buy all my clothes and, Um, I had to look a particular way. I was working for him, but I didn't get any money because he all would take it all. Um, Mm. And so there was all that control on that level. And when we'd go to my father's house for dinner, on the way back, he would do the gaslighting of, why did you say that to your dad? That was a really hurtful or upsetting or disrespectful thing to say. And I'd be racking my... He wouldn't tell me, of course, what I said that was wrong. And I'd be racking my brain thinking, oh, my God, what did I say? I never intended to say anything. And I rang my dad after so many dinners saying, are you okay? Did I say anything that upset you? And my dad's going, no, everything's fine. So there's a lot of that kind of gas sliding as well I used to think when I was in it if I keep track of everything he won't explode but it was only when I was going through my therapy process that I realized actually it's totally unpredictable you can be doing the loveliest thing or you can be doing something that someone might disagree with but you've got a right to be human in whatever way you are and it didn't matter, he would explode for either of them. If I went to the hairdressers and he told me how short my hair, he didn't want me to have short hair, and if the hairdresser cut it a bit shorter than what he said, he was smashing things in the house. And physical abuse is not just when it directly hurts you physically. It's when it is physically damaging property or other items too, because when you're in that 
state and you're seeing the force of someone doing that in your mind, you know, that could be me next and you feel the intensity of it. So if the food wasn't hot enough, you know, I can remember one time, you know, he exploded because he thought the food wasn't hot enough and I'm in the kitchen still getting the food and I'm carrying this hot fry pan and um, I'm, he's punching the fridge and doing all these things and it was only after the incident that my youngest daughter, who was only about um, three or four, um, was asking me why Daddy had that big knife in his in his hand. Um, and in the intensity and the speed of it, I didn't even notice. You know, there were times he was dragging me down the corridor, pinning me up against the the wall. You know, th- those kinds of things. But he used to stand at the door afterwards. He'd come back in the room and he'd go, if you were in a court of law and swore on the Bible, you couldn't say I punched you. I've never punched you. But I still got carpet burn. I still got cut. I still got, you know, in terror. Mm. Um, So, yeah, there was sexual abuse too. Like he would do sexual acts that I wouldn't want to do and urinate on me. And, um, yeah, pretty much he did every kind of abuse that you can do. And when I escaped with the girls, then the legal abuse started. And there was abuse to the children too. He used to handcuff them. Um, He used to do lots of things that were physically to them that were not okay. Mm. Anita, just just to clarify, what what time period, what what stage was this in? Was this, so this all happened, how old were you and what year? Um, this is in the 90s. Okay. Um, I escaped in 93. So I was with him for about five and a half years. And so I was 28, I think it was, when I ended up escaping. 28. Okay. And, and I want to backtrack just a little bit slightly because there's, there's a lot of exploration there um, that, that I think we need to get to. Um, but you mentioned earlier on giving up. Um, and, I'm, and I'm just wondering what giving up looked like for you emotionally. You, you, you used that word. What, what did it look like? What, did it, what was that experience like when you felt like you couldn't, you could, you couldn't escape? Essentially, you couldn't, you couldn't leave. So the, that giving up when I realised, you know, that I couldn't do anything about this because he was so unrelenting. Pers- in pursuing me meant for me that I've got to just make the best of it. Um, And I felt so, I can remember in the beginning of the relationship, like crying inside, wanting to escape, but not having no clue what to do or where to go. And I guess I'd come from a family where no one talked about what was really going on. And there wasn't a sense, everybody, I think, was in a state of trauma themselves and doing the survival mode of, and so it was like we were all really separate, but we all knew how to put on the good face. And so that was just, you know, when I give up, it's like, put on the good face, make the best of it. Um, Relationships, you're meant to go through the good and the bad, aren't you? So I was used to feeling powerless and... I, there, in my mind, because that was all I'd experienced my whole life, there wasn't another option. I just didn't have a map for it. 
you justified it to yourself by saying relationships are up and down, everyone experiences the shit. But when when did that when did that change to actually this is an abusive relationship? It was only when I felt some strength when he was in hospital at the very end. Mm. And so then when I he came back home and I said to him, I'm taking my life back. And he said, well, I'll get a teenager. Um, I'll train a teenager, he actually said. And, like um, get a teenager to go out with him. Yeah, yeah, replace me, yeah. Mm. And so then he backtracked about that and he tried to make out it just because he's been unwell. But I knew it had been there from day one. I could have that clarity. And so I, I said, uh, so then he said, I'll commit suicide if you go, you know, tried all that emotional manipulation. And then he said, we need therapy. And I knew there was no point having a conversation with him about it because it didn't matter what I said, he was going to just do what he wanted to do. And so I thought, well, I don't want to have conflict with him because I know he'll always win because physically he's much stronger than me. Um, so I knew it wasn't worth arguing. So we went to this therapy session and I felt a bit more confident, I guess, because there was someone else in the room, but also because he still wasn't 100% recovered yet. And she must have picked up certain things because I wasn't saying that much because I still was very intimidated. But everything that I was saying, he was saying, that's not that bad. He was minimising everything. So she made an excuse towards the end of the session for him to go to the get something from the car. When he went out of the room, she said to me, and I always feel um, emotional when I think about that moment because she said to me, Anita, get out. Get out now. Don't take anything. It's only going to get worse. It will not get better. And that was the only time someone ever said anything to me. Wow. And it was her saying that, that boom, when he was um, sleeping from recovering, I started ringing Centrelink, um, looking for a rental property. Um, wow. Yeah. So that was actually the moment that you realised it was abusive and you needed to leave straight away. Mm. Was, it, was it the permission? Was it the, the, almost the, someone else organically... Was, it, was able to, you know, sort of tell you this is something that, you know, you, you can do this, you're, you're allowed to do this? It was like, it was probably like the first time in my life that I felt that I can recall someone seeing me and my reality and sticking up for me. Mm. And um, my family said things like one sister used to cry when she'd leave after visiting me. And then my other sister said, but we used to, uh, that they used to talk to each other um, about their concern about me and the children. And it's like, but no one ever talked to me. Um, mm. And then when I said that to one sister, she said, but I did talk to you. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what have I gone amnesic about? And, and I said, what did you say? And she said, I said, he shouldn't talk to you that way. And that was a really mild situation because, of course, he puts on the best face in front of everybody else. And I thought... That that's not an that's not a conversation, and that's about him. It's not about how are you. I'm worried about you. What do you need? Like there was none of that, um, and so that's why I'm I'm so passionate because it's like my family 
didn't know what to do. And there's so many families like that. So, so let's say I was calling you, Anita, um, and you noticed that there was something going a little bit wrong in my relationship and it did flag an abusive relationship to you. Um, what would be the first thing that you would say to me? Mm-hmm. I, I'd name something very specific and concrete that I'm seeing or hearing about you okay. that feels different or concerning so i'd name it in very specific concrete ways and and say what the red flag was uh, yeah yeah, about the person's stress response and um you know and if i was um you know you know being educated about domestic violence i'm i might say that sound i wouldn't say you're in an abusive relationship because Mm. someone could get very defensive but i might say Mm. i understand that what's happening for you it sounds like you're walking on eggshells mm-hmm. and that's something that happens in an abusive relationship right or, you know when i hear your partner do that or when you share that your partner does that that to me sounds like an abusive tendency mm. and it, it's really common to defend the relationship because we all want it to work but i'm concerned that you're evolving around the relationship and where are you in that where are you in the picture and how are you how are you really and truly so I might try that but it depends because everybody's got different defense systems and some people I know when they've tried to talk to someone caught in abuse that there's they lose friendships because the person can't tolerate it and so that's why having more skills about understanding so you know what to say when um, can be helpful. And Anita, with the the makeup, the psychological makeup, what what do you think that represents? What's the psychological makeup of somebody who conducts um, abuse in in, the, in that way to to children to to anyone? Well, I guess I think of someone that needs a lot of power, a lot of control. A lot of um, difficulty in being able to include someone else's reality feelings or needs, and you know, someone that the the thing is, like, I can list a whole lot of, and I don't know if this is quite answering what you're asking me. Like those tendencies, like being jealous, like needing you to be a particular way, um, being pushy, being unrelenting. Like there's all of those things. But the thing is, it kind of doesn't matter what your background is, because there are a lot of people that have come through traumatic backgrounds and they don't do that. And so we can say, oh, it's because of someone's background. But there are a lot of people that, that don't use abuse and have, and have come from similar backgrounds. So for me, it's an, a lot about their denial. It, it's, 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 um, it's so complex, isn't it? Because it's not just, I think, you know, the old way of thinking about abuse might have been that there's this monster that kind of comes out of the woodworks and um, is, is there to perpetrate the violence and the manipulation. Um, but in reality, you know, as you're saying, it's, it's, there's so many facets to it. Um, where does love come into it? Can you, can you love someone and be abusive towards them? Well, I, I think 
it, you can't because to me love is about respecting someone else and allowing them to be who they are. Love is not controlling or shaping someone. So I think people often misname something as love, but it's more, might be an obsession or, um, or, you know, something else. And, and for me, um, when I was writing my book and I was writing all the list of why, why do people get caught in this or why, why they can't escape, I listed all the reasons, you know, that people say why they can't escape. And one of them often is love, mm. yeah? Mm. Or, and often it's that the sex is great. Mm. Um, but it's like what are people experiencing that they define as love because it's not... Uh, it's not what I understand love to be. Mm -hmm. It's um, a, it's a mistaken version of love, maybe. Mm, yeah, there's this um, expectation that if I love you in this particular way, you'll love me in this particular way, and so there's these agreements that we make, I think, unconsciously about um, what love is. It's just. Mm. Yeah, and on that note, um, the question, Maddie, and the answer you've given is got, got me thinking about with with the love topic. Is is it possible to have sort of a a period of the relationship where it is quite authentic and safe, while other parts are unsafe and um, you know quite quite dangerous? Is it possible to have a you know, a dialectical sort of experience with two things are happening at once? I, to me, if there's one area that it's toxic, then even if there's another area that feels good, there's still the undercurrent of that as to, and, and for me, like the, I don't agree with the, the cycle of violence that's often described because it's not about the explosion. It's the attitudes and the ongoing expectations and pattern of control and denial and, and punishment. So um, I, my experience is that if we compartmentalise and this area is good but this area isn't, then we're not looking at the whole. And so what tends to happen is we minimise the worst face and we exaggerate their best face and we also exaggerate our best face we become more compassionate more helpful more understanding instead of being able to have the emotional muscle to be with the big picture to be with the whole we tend to disconnect and then we're swinging back and forwards between bits and we feel stuck because we don't know how to be with the whole and there, the, that's what I'm passionate about showing people so that we're not stuck in these limited coping mechanisms where we are mislabeling so many things, what love is mm. and what the reality is and our difficulty being with the whole of what's going on. So, Anita, with your own sort of practice and your own experiences, I'm wondering how you sort of um, compartmentalise or... Um, objectify or, or change the way you, you, you react to the, we sort of talked about this before, but how you sort of use your experience, your personal experiences. It was obviously years and years ago mm. and you've gone on and 
you've 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 gone into the sort of the research world, and now you obviously you've been practicing for a very long time. What you say is very intellectual, and it and it, and it makes a lot of sense. It does. Um, but the emotion, I, I, I don't, I don't see the emotion there. I don't see the the emotion when when you talk about your experience. Is I'm just curious about that. Yeah, what emotion would you think you would see? I'm not sure. I'm, I mean, I, I think um, your your ability to objectively look at domestic violence and violence in in a way that's quite um, scientific and, and, and different to most. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I mean, I've, I've been involved in um, domestic violence from a um, sort of immediate response sort of police sort of environment. And it's, as you would know, you've experienced yourself, it's just volatile. It's, 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 um, it's really hard to, to to explain what the what the emotion and the um, the context feels and looks like, and um, I'm wondering more how, how you're able to separate it, the processes that you that you take to be able to get to the point where you're able to just freely talk about it um, and articulate it as well as you do. Um, you know, given that it's very sensitive, it's 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 it is extremely traumatic. It's it's painful. Um, that's probably what I, I, I. And I'm not saying this in in any way other than curiosity. Um, yeah. It's just I don't necessarily see the pain or the or the or the or the um, the emotion from you. Yeah, because there's the pain is gone because I've been able to resolve it. It's um, when you see the emotion, it's still reliving in the system. It hasn't gone into long-term memory. And so when I talk about it, it's not lighting anything up in me because I've had the trauma processed. It's been resolved. There are a lot of people who are in the field who are advocates and people with lived experience that I see, I can see very clearly, they still have not resolved their trauma. And the, and so there's, you see the the rawness of it, the, the pain of it, the anguish of it. And um, th that's because it's not fully resolved. Um, once you resolve, because with neuroplasticity, the neural pathways can keep growing when you give them what they need and they can go to their natural conclusion. You come to a different belief about yourself and about the experience. And then you know about what happened, but you're not reliving it. So it's completely a closed chapter. I know about it. I can remember it. I can talk about it. I could go into detail about the um, horrificness of it and what I felt like that's how it's meant to be mm. um, we've still got I think a stereotype about what a survivor um, that pain it, and it's almost like off I can remember when I was going through my healing process and part of me didn't want to let go of the pain because nobody other than that counselor on that one occasion had witnessed my reality and so it was like, if I get over this fast, no one will believe it was as bad as it was. And so it was like one part of me wanted to hold on to it. Um, 
And, and I think because we live in a society that still is so poor about recognising the impact of emotional and psychological abuse, that, that I think a lot of people want to keep staying connected to it so that people see it because they haven't resolved their trauma and they need that, that reflection. But the thing is, it's keeping them in a loop because it's like, I need you to see something in me for me to be okay. And, you know, for me, trauma resolution is when I can know my reality and I'm not dependent on someone else validating it. And that's why I talk to people about the brain and the body and, and how to do that, because that's, to me, the solution. And that's where we can create change, hearing more and more stories, even though I'm happy to share and talk about it when people ask me to. But it's like, that's not going to change someone else that's out in the world, either struggling in a relationship or someone concerned about someone else. I, I, it's, it's more your capacity, your emotional muscle to be with the uncomfortable and to have the skills to know what's happening in myself and how do I take care of that? That's what's going to make a difference in the world. What would the concrete sort of um, um, evidence-based supports be that you would be providing to the woman in those initial stages? Like what areas would you be focusing on? So you mentioned self-awareness. Um, where else would you be going with it? To help those women when they need it. Mm, yeah. To get them out of that cycle initially. Yeah, so giving them those mind-body skills so that they can process the overwhelm and the fear and the, the traumas. That so recognising fear. So it's, it's not just recognising fear because we can recognise fear, but if we don't know how to be with it, it's, that's unbearable to recognise the fear. Yeah. So it's that switching the brain out of the stress response, giving mind-body techniques to be with the, whatever uncomfortable thought or feeling is there and helping them with practical things. You know, mm. is their house secure? Mm. Um, locks in housing, you know, security in the housing. And, like, you know, I started a volunteer program where we'd go and help women in their situations in their house and like one woman was still living in the house where that she'd been in the abusive relationship and he'd left and she was there with the kids and then the rental property people said she had to leave and it brought up all her trauma about she'd been there so many years and there was so so much of her belongings there but also the children had a lot of trauma responses and aggressive responses and he was still persecuting her after the relationship was over. So she was in a mess. And so we went, a volunteer group of women, and we spent um, a few days over a few weeks taking all, of, all her things apart, helping her pack and clean the place. And it's like those practical community things that women need. There's so many things within our system that where the money and the attention when someone leaves, where we need that support, when it's, there's a lot of token support and just not enough. And that's where I think we need action and money to be going. There's, there's so much, so much still to be done. I'm conscious of the time. I know we went way over when I told you we would. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you, you've been, you've been brilliant. Um, Jace, did you have anything else that you pressing questions that you wanted to say or statements before we finish up? I always have statements and questions. <laughs> um, 
Uh, no, I mean, I think this will be really invaluable for people. I mean, it's sort of, we haven't really done a podcast where we've spoken to a clinician mm. um, that's sort of active at the moment um, and with so much experience. I suppose mm. it's going to be really beneficial for people who, you know, are you know, currently um, experiencing, um, you know, domestic violence. And, Especially during COVID. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as well as cl- clinicians that um, also have access to this, um, mm, so mm. yeah, it's going to be pretty pretty powerful. When we um, I always sort of say that we, I really enjoy listening back to the conversation, and, and once you sort of have time to reflect on different parts of your journey, um, I know Maddie and I always just sort of sit back in in awe a lot yeah. of the time. So. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Maddie and Jason. And I guess I, I want to come back to what you said earlier, Maddie, about I don't want people to feel like there's nothing out there for them because mm. there is. And um, yeah, if they want to get in touch with me to give some more specific guidance about what okay. what it is that would support them, because okay. there, you know, there 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 is support out there, but you've got to ask questions i say to my clients or anyone i speak to it's never your fault if something's not working Mm. and you know the therapist doesn't have what you need um and if you're if you're not feeling some shift even in the first session about particularly say after two or three you know i hear heartbreaking stories of people going for a long time and you know like change in interview someone else you know ask questions because you should be getting results straight away you should be feeling a difference um don't endure you've already endured enough don't Mm. keep tolerating there's there's better ways out there so don't give up absolutely don't give up and just to say my children they grew they were born into it or grew up with it they are both adults in healthy relationships with gorgeous children and they've both done trauma work as adults when they became parents it brought up stuff for them but Mm. they're fine you can get past it it doesn't have to be a lifelong thing I get upset when people say um once you've had PTSD and that's it you've always got triggers and traumas and everything that is not true that is absolutely not true. If you had seen me in my younger days, you would not recognise me. I didn't say a word. Um, I self-harmed. Um, I was very, very dissociated. I was, you know, I could describe a lot of the behaviours that I did that were, you know, um, not healthy. Um, mm. It is possible to, when you've got the right support and skills, it can be easy. And so I just want people to be left with, that it can be a satisfying, good experience and not for as long or as hard as you imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, that, and that's such an important message because I think I think that anyone that sees or hears this, you know, you're definitely so passionate about this area and that's enough for people to provoke some hope, you know, that something different's out there, that there are people out there, that it's, it's, it's clearly more than just an a, a, you know, a vocation, a, a job, it's it's their life and it's so powerful to hear. Thank you. That was Making Sense of Chaos. A podcast about death, dying, love, grief and hope. Thank you for listening. 
and we'll see you next time. Thank you.